when there is an accusation from a place like the Washington Post against uh, a Republican Senate candidate in, in Alabama, particularly a controversial one, there are people who will want to uh, be for him because they don't want to be for the Washington Post. Hello and welcome to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright from Columbia's Prizes Department, here with my colleague and co-host, Lisa Cohen. Hello there, Lisa. Hi, Abby. You know, Lisa, we often say around here that we have a very special conversation to share with listeners, right? Like, I think we overuse that a little bit. Almost every episode yeah. is very special. But I got to say, this time, it's really a special and timely conversation. You could almost say ripped from the headlines. Uh, probably one of the most talked about stories of recent days and weeks amidst a lot of news and stories. We were fortunate enough to have Washington Post chief correspondent Dan Balls at the Journalism School last week. He was here to receive the John Chancellor Award for Journalistic Excellence, a really lovely award, big cash prize. And um, we brought him up a day early so that he could have a conversation with his boss, who happens to be Washington Post executive editor Marty Barron so that they could talk to students and to the community. And um, they talked about a story that just, it's not going away. Yep, we are still talking about it. Uh, when we hosted Dan and Marty at the school on November 13th, it was just days after the Washington Post broke a huge story about allegations against uh, Alabama Senate senatorial candidate Judge Roy Moore of um, sexual misconduct with minors dating back to the 1980s. Of course, since then, a fifth woman has come forward with allegations, and there has really just kind of been an avalanche of other stories yeah. about Roy Moore um, and his actions in the 80s and 90s, uh, being banned from local shopping malls, and um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's funny because when we were arranging the conversation, we were like, we'll talk about the most topical story of the week, and it was going to be the election coverage from the week before, and then it was, nope, this is actually the story. So we asked Dan Balls to break it all down, to give us some context on this story and politics today. And, uh, you know, he is the dean of Washington reporters. He's been one of the boys on the bus or one of the men and now women on the plane for decades. And he's just added wisdom and context to his political reporting since 1978, which is when he joined the Washington Post. He's a lifer. Wow. Um, and now he does a Washington Post weekly column. He's been called the godfather of political reporting, and not just because he's such a veteran, but really because he's guided and mentored generations of political reporters who followed him. He is also what my people would call a mensch. Um, you know, I just, we just heard person after person talking about his decency, his kindness, and his even-keeled temperament, which, as you know, is rare in our, in our profession. Yeah, absolutely. He's a, a mensch from the Midwest. We um, we were really thrilled to get to know him here, too. Absolutely. And he was here with his boss, Marty Barron, who it seems has run almost every major newspaper yeah. in the United States over the course of his very storied career, starting at the Miami Herald and the L.A. Times, all the way to the Boston Globe, where his passion for investigative reporting led the Globe to six Pulitzer Prizes, during his tenure there as editor, including one, of course, for coverage of the sex abuse scandal in the Catholic Church, featured in the movie Spotlight. Uh, so since 2013, he has been executive editor at the Washington Post, where he has really reinvigorated things there under the ownership of Amazon chairman Jeff Bezos. 
So let's get to it. This edited version of a conversation we called Political Reporting in the Age of Trump with Dan Balls and Marty Barron of The Washington Post. We kicked off the conversation by asking Marty Barron about how this explosive reporting about Judge Moore came about, what went into it, how it was vetted, and how he responds to the pushback against the reporting. Uh, well, look, uh, we cover politics. So we, um, uh, one of our reporters, Stephanie McCrumman, one of the best reporters at the paper, uh, went down to Alabama to uh, talk to more supporters. Uh, that was the purpose of her trip. And uh, in the process, while she was there, she came across information that, that Moore may have uh, engaged in these activities that we've reported about. And so, like any good reporter, she pursued that. Um, she, she put aside the story that she went down there to pursue in order to pursue this particular story and uh, did a lot of work uh, and then was uh, aided in that work by two additional uh, uh, individuals, Beth Reinhardt, who's on an investigative team, and Alice Kreitz, who's a researcher on, uh, working on the politics and other things. And so um, uh, it took, uh, I, would, I think it's about uh, three or four weeks to really uh, pull it all together. Uh, so, you know, in a story like this, you want, you want multiple confirmations of what uh, women are alleging occurred. And uh, in this instance, uh, we had multiple confirmations of that. Uh, you also uh, would like the women to go on the record, uh, because otherwise it's just an anonymous individual whom you can't identify, uh, which doesn't have a lot of credibility. So we were able to uh, get both of those. We were able to get multiple confirmations. We were able to get uh, the women were agreed, not initially. They didn't come to us. We approached them. Uh, they were very reluctant to uh, speak on the record, to have their names used uh, for obvious reasons. And I think we see what those reasons are today, uh, because if you speak up, then you come under severe attack, and, and they have. Uh, and yet they've held to their stories. Uh, they have not backed off them, their stories at all, uh, despite all the pressure and the criticism and things like that. And so, um, you know, these, uh, there are multiple editors involved in these stories. Uh, we have our national editor here, Stephen Ginsburg, um, and he was a key editor on that story. Our investigative team uh, was editing it. Um, our managing editor looked at the story very closely. I looked at the story. Uh, basically, you want to look at that story and say, okay, how do we make sure that the story is bulletproof? What is it that somebody could, um, uh, could where, is there a hole that somebody could find? Uh, and you, know, you need to ask about the women's backgrounds, anything in their background that, that might uh, cast doubts on the, their credibility. And, and so you know, the way that the story was written, I thought was uh, fantastic. I mean, it, was, it basically laid everything out. It told people how we went about that story, how we came across the story. It had the multiple confirmations that are necessary uh, to make it a, a strong story. It had the women uh, on the record. Uh, it talked about their, uh, their backgrounds. Uh, and anything that uh, somebody might use to attack their credibility was all laid out there uh, for, anyone to, for anyone to see. And, um, and so that's why the story has really held up uh, so far. Uh, it's true that, you know, uh, uh, another organization, uh, Breitbart, has gone down there, I, I guess, with the idea of trying to discredit the story. But from what I can tell so far, they've just confirmed the story. Um, their big headline uh, today, I guess, was 
that that uh, the women didn't come to us, that we went to them and that uh, we, uh, as they put it, convinced them to go on the record. Uh, well, yeah, uh, that's what we said in the story. Uh, and it's amazing to me that they actually spent all that money to go down there uh, and then produce a story with a big headline that says exactly what we said in the story in the first place, which was that, you know, they didn't approach us. Uh, we found them, and after a number of interviews, uh, which they were reluctant to come forward, but it's important for the sake of credibility uh, that they actually uh, identify themselves. And can you imagine what the reaction would have been if they had remained anonymous? We would have been criticized for using anonymous sources to make serious charges, the most serious charges, against a Senate candidate. So since that option is not available, apparently we're going to be criticized for getting them to actually go on the record, um, which we're always encouraged to do. But I think the way that uh, we approached that story was exactly the, exactly the right one, and that's why the story has held up so well. Uh, but Dan should really talk about the political ramifications. I mean, we've had some uh, in the Republican Party who've said uh, that he should uh, step aside if these allegations are proven to be true. We've had uh, some people say that he should just fully step aside, and McConnell said that. Uh, and others said that, and, and yet we have politicians in Alabama in particular who, who are standing uh, by Roy Moore. And so how do you interpret that? And, and, if, if, uh, and if Roy Moore wins the election, despite what's been published, what does that say about the impact of the media and what does it say about politics today? This is, a, this is an extraordinarily interesting story for a whole, whole set of reasons. Um, it's not as though Roy Moore was an uncontroversial character or politician to begin with. He was twice removed from the state Supreme Court for, for essentially refusing to follow the law. Um, he was not the choice of the Republican establishment in the Republican primaries. Um, he ran in that primary a, a kind of Trumpian campaign, which is to say he, the outsider campaign, the, the candidate who would come to Washington and blow things up. He had the support of Steve Bannon, um, but the, uh, the, the sitting senator who had replaced Jeff Sessions, Luther Strange, had the support of the Republican establishment, of Mitch McConnell and others, and an endorsement from the President of the United States, which may have been lukewarm, uh, but nonetheless uh, he had received. So he won the primary, and I think that having done that in a state as red as Alabama is in its, in its political makeup, there was, on the part of the Republican establishment, a sense that this, there was an inevitability to the fact that he was going to come to Washington, but not many of them were enthusiastic about that. Um, they, they certainly do not look at Roy Moore as someone who would A, be a team player, and, and B, represents things that they don't necessarily want to be associated with. So then comes this story. Um, as Marty said, there are some uh, Republican politicians who have kind of gone halfway in saying he should step aside, but only if these allegations are proven true. Well, um, these allegations have a, a great deal of strength behind them because of the women who went on the record. Um, I don't know what further proof they want, but, on the, but they are reluctant, I think, to make a full break. But what you saw today with Mitch McConnell, what you saw with Mitt Romney a few days ago, who, who basically said, um, you know, the, the allegations, the questions of proof uh, are the kinds of things that you deal with in a court of law, but this is an election. Uh, and he said he believed uh, the, the, the main accuser. 
uh, and that, that Roy Moore should step aside. Mitch McConnell did that again today um, and simply said, I believe the women and Roy Moore should, should exit the race. Uh, Cory Gardner, the senator from Colorado, who's the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, did the same thing and went farther and said if he were to win the election and is seated, um, that he would propose and he would recommend that the Senate expel him um, and, and send him back to uh, Alabama. But what you're seeing in terms of the defense that people are, are making um, is indicative of the, you know, in a sense, the broader, deeper story of politics in America at this point. Um, this is a deeply divided country, as everybody knows. Um, it, is, it is tribal in the way people pick their, pick their parties and pick their candidates. Uh, and people pick their, their parties and because of that they make certain decisions about what they think about issues as opposed to the, to the reverse. Um, and so when there is an accusation from a place like the Washington Post against uh, a Republican Senate candidate in, in Alabama, particularly a controversial one. There are people who will want to uh, be for him because they don't want to be for the Washington Post. And this is, this is one extreme example in a sense because the charges are so serious and, and because of what they involved in terms of sexual harassment and, and uh, criminality when you're dealing with a 14-year-old girl. But it is not surprising in other ways given what we have seen through the Trump election and even before the Trump election. The desire of some people not to believe certain fact-based journalism, uh, the desire of people to take sides uh, out, of, out of ideology and, and uh, allegiance to a political party, um, the siloing of, of the way we get our information now. Um, and so all of this, in a sense, makes sense even, even as serious as these charges are. I don't know whether he will win the election, but if he does win, um, I think that the, the scenario that Cory Gardner laid out today might well be what happens, that, that he would, a lawyer friend sent me an email last week and, and reminded me that the Senate has to seat somebody who wins an election. It was a court decision some years ago involving somebody else who got into a legal problem and um, the House tried not to seat him and the, and the court said you have to seat him. But once seated, he, he, th that politician comes under the rules of the body and therefore they can take an, an action against him, put him through an ethics investigation and they could expel him in that case. And, and so if they did expel him, what? What kind of damage would that do to the Republican Party? I well, mean, I wouldn't think that alienate uh, a substantial portion of their base. Well, they're—I mean—they're—they're they're damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't. I mean, it, on the one hand, if they—if they were to take no action, um, given given the seriousness of this, uh, they will be accused of, uh, you know, coddling somebody who has been charged with uh, sexual harassment and, and uh, dealing with underage girls. Um, that is a position <clears throat> that the Republican Party desperately not, does not want to be associated with. But this is a party that's, that's already divided. Um, this was a party that was divided before Donald Trump came on the scene. So if, if, if Roy Moore gets, gets elected despite these allegations, what, what does that <laughs> actually say about the press and the impact of the press? I mean, would we just interpret that as hostility or indifference to the to the Washington Post or is it is it something deeper than that is it is it that the press doesn't have the impact that it once did uh, how do you how do you interpret that well I think it's broader than, than criticism of the Washington Post it is a hostility in general 
to a lot of the kinds of reporting that we do and other news organizations do um, that is critical of a politician in power. Now, you know, the Washington Post has never been a favorite of presidents. Um, you know, we have, we have been tough on presidents dating back, you know, as long as I've been at the Post and before I, I arrived after Watergate. The, the, the Post and other, you know, and other news organizations like us um, feel we have an obligation to hold people in power accountable and people in power don't like to be held as accountable as we want to, to do that. Um, but because we are now so polarized and because our media is more polarized and you know you can use the Fox and MSNBC as kind of the, the polls um, and but there's but there's all kinds of stuff underneath that 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 push people in one direction or another um, and um, all of us get emails constantly when we write a story critical uh, of this president um, that, that goes immediately to the idea that, that we make it up or that it's fake news or that, you know, that we're trying to, you know, we can't abide by what happened in the election and we're trying to delegitimize him. But the other thing we've seen in, in part because of that is that there are a lot of people who now appreciate this kind of journalism in a way they probably kind of took it for granted five years ago or 10 years ago. I mean, I think they recognize the, the, the need for a vital and active press um, in a time like this. So like the, the Washington Post fact checker has done, um, has been working harder than ever, I would say, <laughs> these days. Um, and they've calculated that there were more than 1,300 falsehoods from the president uh, since he took office. Does that, over time, have any impact in your view, or is that just simply uh, going to be dismissed? Uh, no matter how many, what, no matter what the number is, Marty. I think it has some impact, but I don't think it has the impact that we would like to think it has, because we we believe that politicians ought not to lie, uh, that people ought to tell the truth if they're in politics, um, and that they ought to be held accountable when they when they don't. You know, we always kind of do a debrief after every election. Kind of, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? What do we wish we you know had done? What can we do better in the in the in the next cycle? And one of the things that came out of that, and I think it was Dave Broder's idea, was we ought, we ought to be, in a sense, fact-checking political advertising. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we started to do that, and it had, it had some impact. It didn't eliminate negative advertising. The main impact was it's, it, it, it forced campaigns to do footnoting to show, here's the sources of it. Um, but when you really looked at those footnotes, they became questionable. And but so we tried that, and with you know with Donald Trump, um, you know Glenn and Michelle, our fact checker team, um, you know they work around the clock now because they have to. <laughs> There's so much to check. But I think that people do discount it, and I think that it does not change the behavior of politicians today in the way, at least other politicians. The the other thing I would say about that is that. Um, Donald Trump has demonstrated literally from the moment he became a candidate uh, that he can break the rules and get away with it in the way no other politician in our lifetimes has been able to do that. And so I think that's another element about him. He survives things that normal politicians should not be able to survive. Right. So talk about him. I mean, how is he fundamentally different from all the other presidential candidates you've covered and from the other presidents that you've covered? Well, the, I mean, the, the first fundamental difference is he's the first person we've covered who, who had never run before, uh, had no governmental experience, and had no military experience. 
he was, you know, he was a total novice in this, and yet he may have been pre better prepared for politics in this era than any of the people who had come up and who he was running against in the Republican nomination. And I say that because um, he, uh, he understood television in a way most politicians don't. He was a reality TV star. I mean, he had a very, very popular program in The, in the Apprentice. Um, he became comfortable on the camera and he knew how to act in front of a camera. And we, we may hate to think this, but, but part of being a good politician is being a good actor. Um, and, I, and I don't mean that in a totally cynical sense, but you are performing and you have to make connections and you have to be persuasive. He had cut his teeth here uh, in tabloid journalism uh, as a young businessman, a man about town. Um, that turns out to be an enormously helpful talent in the age of Twitter. Um, you, you learn how to, how to create a conversation. Uh, you learn how to control uh, an agenda. And he, he figured out how to do that. He understood how to manipulate, in a sense, the media uh, by calling into TV shows uh, at the beginning of his campaign. No other candidate wanted to do that. John Dickerson was up, up at uh, Harvard last week, and, and we were talking about this. And, and he said none of the other politicians were willing to be accessible. Donald Trump was willing to be accessible. Uh, and he, he said outrageous things, and he measured the reaction to those. And things that seemed to be working for him, he would, he would double down on it. He would keep pushing on it. Um, the, the, in the White House, we've never seen, I, I've never seen in my lifetime a president anything like this president. I mean, in, in, in almost every way, he is unlike all of the other presidents we've covered. And so you have this incredible disconnect between the president of the United States and the rest of the government. Uh, you know, if you drew a table of organization for this government, you could have all of the boxes, you know, of all of the White House staff and the chief of staff and everybody underneath it and the agencies and the cabinet and all of that, and it would all look pretty normal, but there'd be no line connecting it up to the President of the United States, right? Because he does whatever he wants whenever he wants and contradicts his own cabinet officers when he feels to, uh, that it's in his interest to do it. I don't know how you can, for four years, run a government like that, but he's, you know, he's bound and determined to try to do it. And, and he makes all of us, in a sense, follow the direction that he wants to push us. So, okay, so what are the implications for how we should cover a president like this? What should we be doing differently now in comparison to how we covered presidents in the past? Two things. One is one of the things that we're doing, uh, which is that we have to be, we have to be around the clock with him. I don't think we have the luxury of ignoring things he says and does. Um, we often get asked, why do you pay attention to his tweets? Um, it's not because we know which of these tweets are really important and which aren't, and I think over time we've learned to pay more attention to some than to others. We, you know, we, we obviously don't pay attention to all his tweets, but, but he has the capacity um, to make policy, as he did when he tweeted out that there would, you know, we were going to rescind the, the transgender um, uh, opportunities in the military. Um, he, he does it when he contradicts Rex Tillerson on, on uh, whether diplomacy is a route to take uh, with Kim Jong-un in, in North Korea. Um, we can't assume we know what's, what's right for the American people in terms of what to cover and what not to cover with Donald Trump. We have to cover what he does and says, uh, and we have to provide context. 
I think that the other challenge, and I think that, that we're all, you know, we're all wrestling with this, is how do you do that and then maintain some distance? How do you do that um, and not, in every case, go immediately to the idea that this was a crazy thing for him to do, or, or that you know, that, that, that this shows he's, you know, he's irresponsible or unfit? There's there's so much coverage that pushes in that direction, um, and I, I think that it behooves us all. Uh, not to get swept up in that. Um, it's one thing to cover it, it's another thing to step back and say, what, what, are, what are we not understanding about him? Because, I mean, the, the, the truth is, he, he surprised all of us through the, through the course of the campaign. And from his own vantage point, as he's often said, you know, these smart people tell me I ought not to do A, B, or C. They were the same people who told me I could never win the presidency. You talked earlier about the press needing to maintain some distance in its evaluation of him. Now, um, he, of course, has attacked the press relentlessly. It's, I think, been the longest, even Chris Wallace the other day said it was like the longest sustained attack on the, on the press uh, in history. Can the press maintain distance or objectivity, uh, uh, fairness uh, in, covering, in covering this president given his constant attacks on, on the mainstream press? I mean, this is a question that I get all asked all the time. What's your and, answer? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, you first, Dan. Uh, it's not easy, but I think the only way we can do it is to do the kind of reporting that we you know, are trained to do, and that is um, to try to get the story as fully and completely as we can in the amount of time we have to produce a story and the degree to which it's incomplete, keep going and keep digging. It, it means um, not backing down when we are up against those challenges. I think that the, the, the danger is that we get, we get baited into doing things we ought not to do. And I think that's the, I mean, I think that's the thing we have to work against, that, um, that this kind of relentless attacks and, and efforts on, on his part frequently to try to delegitimize us um, I think has taken a toll. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, and I don't know that there's a simple way to try to get that back quickly. You know, it's common today for people to say that the press is more partisan than it ever has been in the past. And Steve Bannon calls us the uh, opposition party. Um, what's your assessment? I mean, you've been covering uh, this a long time. You've observed the performance of the press over a long period of time. Has the press, in fact, become more partisan? Marty, I think the whole society has become more partisan, and, and as a result, people make judgments about the media and, and lots of other things, uh, in part by where they where they stand politically. Um, and so, um, I think that the that the coverage of this president is tougher, in many ways, than previous presidents. But I think that 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 has happened because of the things that he's done and said that require us to, you know call balls and strikes. And we're not trying to practice he said, she said journalism. We're trying to be fair and present both sides, but sometimes one side is more powerful than the other. And I think that we have to recognize that. But if, if it becomes part of a partisan activity, then, then we're not doing our job. That's tricky ground, right? I mean, especially in these times, figuring out exactly where that line is between, on the one hand, accurately reporting on clear abuse of power, 
and on the other hand, fairly presenting all sides of a story, like when is that false equivalency? We really appreciated them talking about it and for taking so many questions when we got to the Q&A part. It was really full house. We're back with Marty Barron and Chancellor Award winner Dan Balls, and I got to ask the first audience question. It's the moderator's prerogative. <laughs> we hear so much about the leaks from inside the White House. I mean, it's almost not comical, but it seems that so much of the reporting that I read is driven by these unrelenting leaks way more than I recall there ever being in any other administration. How does that work? I mean, are there people inside calling you? How do you describe the situation with that? It's been helpful for journalists, but it also gives an impression of no one sort of steering the ship or people using the media to get their boss's attention. I don't know what to make of it. Um, a couple of things are, are going on. On the one hand, this is an administration, as we've been saying, that is hostile to mainstream media. Um, and that starts at the top, and, and it's pervasive across the White House. Uh, on the other hand, this is the leakiest White House we've seen in, in modern times. And that is partly because, and I don't watch this program, but it is a Game of Thrones, uh, or has been a Game of Thrones inside the White House. Um, we have stories that we source to 18 people sometimes. And one of the reasons is you can't get the truth from just talking to four people at the White House. Uh, and the second reason is that when, when our White House team is interviewing someone somewhere in the White House, that person, in addition to answering those questions, is often dumping on somebody else elsewhere in the White House. And so you have, um, and you had, this, I think, more intensively before uh, John Kelly took over as chief of staff, um, but it still persists to some extent. The other aspect of this is, um, there are many people who know Donald Trump and who know that the way to reach Donald Trump is to go public with something, uh, whether it is to go on Fox News. I mean, Newt Gingrich used to say this during the campaign. He would, he felt, and he had, you know, he had some links into the, the Trump operation and to Trump himself, but he always felt his most effective way of making a point to get Donald Trump to listen, particularly when he thought that Trump was doing something stupid or, or that was gonna be politically harmful, was to go on Fox and make that point on the air. And so all of that creates this kind of incredible leakiness that we see at the White House. Um, obviously the role of a journalist has changed quite a bit, even in the past decade, where um, uh, reporters are asked more than even just to write and report on a story, they're asked to tweet about it and use social media. Um, how has how has this changed and from you, what you guys have seen and how specifically has the Washington Post, how, what have you told uh, your reporters to do in terms of Twitter? Our reporters, a lot of, all of our reporters are pretty much on Twitter. I think almost all, there's some that decide not to, but for the most part people are. Uh, they're establishing their identity, they're, they're building an audience, uh, they want people to follow them, uh, they want to be recognized as authorities in their field, which uh, for the most part they are. Um, you know, I, we want them to, we want the public to really understand them as real human beings, uh, as not sort of, we, we don't want them to think of us as a faceless institution. We actually have real people who work there. Uh, they have personalities, we want them to show those personalities to the, to the public. 
And yet at the same time, they have to be careful uh, not to do things that, um, that stir up needless controversies, uh, that just end up disrupting the kind of reporting that we are trying to do, uh, that may make, their, may make it almost impossible for their colleagues uh, to do their reporting, because people might, have, uh, might form an opinion about who we are as an institution based on one tweet from one reporter uh, that other media outlets might seize upon in order to uh, discredit us. Uh, so, you know, we ask people to be careful, to think it through. Um, I suggest that people sort of review their tweet a few times before they actually uh, send it out. Um, I think that would be good. Uh, maybe wait five minutes, think it over, uh, things like that. Not everybody follows that advice. Um, you know, we've had a, a few occasions where we've had to have conversations with people about their, about their tweeting. So. Um, we do have policies, just like the New York Times has a policy, uh, and a stricter policy now. We have, we have our policy as well. Um, and we just ask people to be careful and to use common sense. How do you see the local news reporting in today under the age of Trump? And also, you know, what's not trying to accuse the Alabama, you know, local news reporters, but why do you think they did not discover such story? And so what's missing in their local news reporting, and how do we improve that? Well, I don't know. I'm not, I wouldn't be critical. Uh, we had a piece today by Philip Pump that I think put it pretty well, and that is the, the stakes get higher uh, when somebody runs for a higher office. There's far more scrutiny of a candidate uh, when he or she runs for president uh, than when they run for senator. And there's far more scrutiny of a, a candidate when they run for senator than when they were running for governor or a judgeship. At some point, some people say, I've got to talk about this. I, need, I finally need to talk about this. And we were not just a passive beneficiary. Obviously, we heard it, and then we went out reporting. Uh, but um, we were a beneficiary of that. And the individuals obviously felt that the time had come for them to speak. And I think in the past, uh, they may not have felt that the stakes were so high. Uh, I don't know. But, or they felt that, um, you know, that the, the, the way that they would have beaten up far outweighed whatever benefit would have been derived. So I don't know. I happen to think that there's a tremendous amount of really good local reporting taking place in this country. Uh, we see it all the time. And um, it's unfortunate that, uh, that local and regional newspapers under, su under such tremendous pressure, I think it is the greatest crisis that we face in journalism today. But notwithstanding those pressures, uh, we see so many uh, news organizations, primarily newspapers, that are doing uh, tremendous work and a lot of investigative work as well. And it's essential that they continue to, to do that kind of work. So there's been a proliferation of a lot of actual fake news over the past year and during the election cycle. And what is, what is your take on how reporters and journalists should navigate this space when there's this misinformation out there that not just readers are susceptible to being misinformed by, but that journalists are also susceptible to being misled by? Uh, well, we have to do more research. Uh, I mean, we've been, it's already been reported that uh, we linked on a number of occasions to some sites that were uh, connected uh, with Russia. Um, and, you know, we need, to do more we need to do more reporting when we're doing these links to, and to, to verify that these sites are something legitimate. Uh, and we're already now beginning to give some thought as to how we would go about that process of verification. And because it can be difficult, particularly when you're on deadline, 
uh, particularly if you're writing right in the moment. Um, so we certainly need to be more careful, particularly with any, let's say, Twitter account uh, where somebody's not using their real name and uh, it's not a verified account. And even if it is verified, what does that really mean? We need to look more deeply uh, into that. And we probably should set some standards uh, some that we, uh, that we need to meet in term before we actually link to some of these, uh, some of these accounts. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you. Thank you all. Thanks again to Dan Balls and Marty Barron of The Washington Post for that really in-depth look at political reporting today. The Washington Post is unstoppable, right? I mean, just this week, their reporters published a damning report on Charlie Rose and the sexual harassment charges against him. Within 48 hours of the story's publication, both PBS and CBS News have fired him. And we're coming up on that special election down in Alabama, so we'll certainly be keeping an eye on that. Lisa, do you have anything you'd like to recommend? I do, actually. Uh, aside from hitting refresh on my computer about every five minutes to hear about what's happening in Alabama and in all these accusations popping up right. all over the country about uh, sexual abuse and harassment, um, I actually was em enmeshed this weekend in an article by my friend, Amanda Robb, who is an investigative reporter who was working with Rolling Stone on an article called Pizzagate, Anatomy of a Fake News Scandal. She has been working on this for a year. Uh, she said she thought it almost killed her, but it was a deep dive on one fake news story that stood out, mainly because it actually drove a credulous and armed man to drive from North Carolina up to D.C., and he shot up a pizza parlor thinking that he was rescuing sex-trafficked children from Hillary Clinton. Um, it made big news at the time, but she then took a, took a big chunk of time to, to travel the country and track it back to try to figure out the origins of this fake news story and was in like five different cities. She even went to Macedonia this summer where people cut and paste fake news from American media outlets and then make money off of it. Um, it's it's just astonishing to me. I, I mean, there have been a lot of pieces, a lot of reports about fake news. And I think maybe because I know her personally and I've been hearing about this, it just kind of hit home. But just the idea that people out there are leveraging and making money off of complete fabrications that then are being spread around the country by bots and listened to and believed by people who don't know any better and that this actually then ends up impacting our government. And journalists are in a, in a war. We're at war with people who use nerve gas and dirty bombs to fight. And I don't know how, I don't, it's just, it's just astonishing to me. Yeah. So that's in Rolling Stone? Rolling Stone this month. And then sh they collaborated with uh, um, Reveal, CIR's Reveal, and did a podcast. So they, that's online as well. Sounds great. Yeah. I'm going to check it out. Thank you for that. I uh, I don't really have anything to recommend in the news front. I I went to see Lady Bird, the oh. new Greta Gerwig film this weekend, and I've heard amazing things about it. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I do recommend it. Take a break from nonfiction and go into the fiction world. You would like it. It's a young woman, a senior in high school. It really is about the relationship of a of an eighteen year old girl with her mom, which is not something that you see a lot in movies. And it's very um, honest but affectionate to, to both of them. 
So, so is it a contentious relationship? Very contentious. Oh, great. Very contentious. But there's a lot of uh, humanity in both of them. So, you know, it's it's a warts and all sort of thing, but it is affectionate, too. Well, the trailer looked really funny and very sweet. It ultimately is quite sweet, yes. A moment in time. It takes place in 2002, which, believe it or not, feels like a long time ago. Wow. Yeah. Next up in our next episode, we'll be talking with Brian Knappenberger, who's the director of Nobody Speaks, and that was a conversation following one of our recent Film Fridays. For more information on how to attend Film Fridays, check out the online events calendar at journalism.columbia.edu slash events. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by Asla Chaturvedi with the assistance of our special projects coordinator, Millie Christy Dervaux. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. AJ Mangone was in the control room. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod and visit us at OnAssignmentPodcast.org. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks.